0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we are continuing chapter 3 which is titled The Relation of Moral Obligation and God in LDS Thought. So last time we went over Francis Beckwith's argument against an LDS option to have a moral ethic because we have a moral system that's separate from God being the source of morals. And we talked about that and how basically that didn't quite hold up. And so now today we want to explore what are the ethics in LDS Thought? What are the possibilities? And so the first section... In the second half, here is just that. I'll read this quote and then we can talk about an introduction a little bit here. It says, It seems to me that as far as ethical theories go, and you say, and they don't go very far, so I guess we can comment on that in a second, but either a utilitarian or deontological theory of ethics is more aligned with LDS thought than any reviewed by Beckwith. Because Beckwith had reviewed several different ethical systems and said, Well, LDS could adopt that, I guess, but they don't hold up because they don't meet his criteria and they're not an adequate ethical system. And so just a definition of both of those, a deontological theory of ethics is one that bases moral obligation on rational duty, and then a utilitarian ethic bases moral obligation on the utility, or the usefulness, or how it works of a rule or an act to promote the greatest happiness. And anyway, just to introduce this half of it, is there anything else you want to say? No, except for
1: they are very fundamentally different ways of approaching ethics. As we get into this, I'll just give a broad overview of where I think utilitarian theories actually fit. In essence, I take utilitarian theories or what I call teleological theories. When I call it a teleological theory, it comes from the Greek word telos, which means the end or purpose for which something is done. And so a a teleological theory is one where you look at the results rather than basic human rights or dignity as a basis for ethics. My view is that when we're talking about social issues, that utilitarianism, an objective standard of utilitarianism must be used. And so when we're talking political theory, when we're talking about what we would do as a social program, we're talking about teleological issues. But when we're talking about ethics, we're in a different realm. So, teleological theories are basically social issue theories that involve you've got this basic structure. Ethical theories have to do with the I thou, the relationships between two people and the obligations that we owe each other. Teleological theories have to do with the third. That is, it's not merely two people involved. Now we have a third person involved and we have an issue of distributive justice. So, at this point, When we start talking about these kinds of social issues, I believe that teleological theories like utilitarianism make a lot more sense. And we really can't talk about the kinds of basic human rights, and then they come into conflict. So just as an overview on political theory, basic human rights are protected based on ethical demands against the social interest. And so the rights, when they come into conflict with social issues, the rights will trump. And it is the role of a constitution to protect those basic rights over against the demands of the democratic majority. So that's where I think utilitarian theories fit in.
0: All right, great. Well, yeah, we're going to go more into depth on each of these. So now we're kind of introduced this, but now Jacob's going to go more in depth on an LDS teleological ethic. And you have it phrased as a question in your book.
2: So I guess I'll say, an LDS teleological ethic? So the way you define it in the book, you say a teleological theory of ethics is one that bases the rightness or wrongness of an act, not on the qualities of the act itself, but on the consequences or ends brought about by the act. And then uh, we begin a discussion of utilitarianism because it seems like Joseph Smith made some statements that could suggest utilitarian ethic. If you could just briefly explain utilitarianism and its tenets.
1: We've already talked about it a little bit. With utilitarian theory, what we're doing is some kind of what we'll call mathematics of weighing various interests. And so we're doing what's known as utilitarian calculus. Basically, what we're looking at is the demands of the greatest good for the greatest number. It's an easy way. It's, that's John Stuart Mill's statement of utilitarianism. There was a disagreement between Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill's. Jeremy Bentham had what we would call just a, a straight across weighing of what I'm going to call utilitarian utils. That is, so we have this, you know, when we're looking at the greatest happiness for the greatest number, we have some way of weighing what leads to happiness and the utility that we get out of things to create happiness. John Stuart Mill made a distinction and what he called pig value. <laughs> that is, he made a distinction between the experience of a pig and the experience of a human being the experience of a human being is richer and fuller and so if we're weighing the happiness that a pig is going to enjoy listening to beethoven's fifth symphony and the joy that a human being is going to get out of listening to a fifth symphony they're weighed very differently and he maintained that some things just don't have the same kind of value when we consider how we are weighing the various considerations and so There's also what's known as Act Utilitarianism and Rule Utilitarianism. So in Act Utilitarianism, you look at the greatest good that is created by a particular act and every act is submitted to the utilitarian calculus, whereas Rule Utilitarianism comes up with basic statements and rules that will then guide to the greatest utility and the greatest happiness for the greatest number. So rule utilitarianism looks for rules or laws or basic propositions that one can rely upon as a basis for ethical obligations, whereas act utilitarianism looks at weighing every act that we do based upon whether it will create the greatest good for the greatest number.
2: All right. And uh, some of the statements that Joseph Smith made that uh, kind of suggests this utilitarian ethic is, he says, in obedience, there is joy and peace unspotted and unalloyed. And as God has designed our happiness and the happiness of all his creatures, he never will institute an ordinance or give a commandment to his people that is not calculated in its nature to promote that happiness which he hath designed and which will not end in the greatest amount of good and glory to those who become the recipients of his law and ordinances. Uh, Another thing he mentions is happiness is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. And this path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all the commandments of God. So he kind of shows that you know, God's purpose in giving us commandments is to lead us to the choices that result in the greatest happiness for all of us, which kind of has resonance of a utilitarian ethic.
1: What Joseph Smith is saying that he's basically here enunciating a rule utilitarian type of approach, and that is, God gives a commandment, for instance, that shall not steal, and the reason he gives this commandment is that it will lead to the greatest happiness for those involved and so it's utilitarian it's the results of adopting a particular commandment or rule that makes it right or wrong and so here he appears to be adopting a type of rule utilitarian approach to good and evil
2: okay however we have other statements from joseph smith that seem or at least at first blush to to teach some sort of divine command theory of ethics, or or a view that an act is good or evil solely based on the virtue of the fact that God commands it.
1: Let's distinguish right now. I mean, what Joseph Smith was previously saying was that when God gives a command, and it becomes right merely because he gives it, the rightness of his command is based upon the fact that it leads to the greatest happiness, and the greatest amount of good and glory to those who are recipients of his laws and ordinances. So... The goodness is based upon the results of following his commands, which would be inconsistent with a divine command theory, which holds that something is good merely because God commands it. The goodness is in the fact that God commands it, not in the results that would result from following. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and an example of one of those quotes is when he said, that which is wrong under one circumstance may be, and often is, right under another. God said, thou shalt not kill. And then another time he said, thou shalt utterly destroy. This is a principle on which the government of heaven is conducted, by revelation adapted to the circumstances in which the children of the kingdom are placed. Whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is, although we may not see the reason thereof until long after it transpires. Which is kind of flying in the face of the, you know, this is all for our, our greatest happiness. This seems to be saying more of divine commentary. Well, God said it, and just because God said it, it's always right. So how do we reconcile the two in your view?
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting because Joseph Smith seems to be saying in this statement, even though it may be wrong when he previously said it, if God says it and he changes his mind and says something different, then that becomes good instead because God has commanded it. As I observe in the book, I'm open to the possibility that Joseph Smith is just inconsistent because I don't see him as a systematic theologian or a logician or somebody who's really concerned about coherence. But I think that there's an easy way to reconcile these statements, and that is that happiness is greatest good, and what God commands always will lead to our happiness and greatest good. And when he changes his command, it's because under different circumstances, what will lead to our greatest good is different in those circumstances. And so it may be right, what God commands is always right, but not because he commands it, but because the results that will follow. And what will make us happy may change given different circumstances, and so it's easy to reconcile those two kinds of statements.
2: Excellent. Next part we're going to discuss is the human rights objection, and uh, I'll go ahead and pass that to Corey.
0: Okay, so yeah, um, this is a human rights objection to utilitarianism or teleological theories in general, and again, teleological just means that you're focused more on the results of an action rather than the goodness of the act itself. And so, here's a quote says, teleological theories run into their greatest difficulty whenever the impersonal value of the greatest good is pitted against the intrinsic value and human dignity of individuals. For example, if punishing an innocent person would deter many others from committing crimes, that would lead to the greatest happiness and good for society as a whole. Then utilitarianism would sanction violating basic human rights by punishing those who are innocent. And of course, that's just an extreme thought experiment, but This kind of thing is one of the main objections to utilitarianism is that, well, the greatest happiness for the greatest good could be something that doesn't necessarily work out for other people. And there's lots of examples like that. Another one that I just listened to recently was let's say you're a doctor and you have five patients that all need different organs transplanted to them and they're good contributing members to society, and you happen to have a friend that is a perfect match, a blood type for all of them magically, you know, and he actually has all those organs that these people need, and he's kind of wasting his life away, doesn't really do anything, and so the greatest good for the greatest number of people that would bring the most happiness for all of society is clearly to kill this guy and give his organs to these people. And again, that's just an extreme experiment, but these kind of things could be justified if you take this utilitarianism ethic to its ends.
1: I think what's important to recognize is that utilitarianism doesn't have any principled basis for grounding basic human rights. The very notion of rights is difficult to justify on a utilitarian view because human rights are absolute, they stand even over against the greatest good for the greatest number. And so if all we're doing is adopting this kind of utilitarian ethic, then we're going to have a a view that will be inconsistent with the notion that there are in fact human rights. That's why we have the basic playoff in in American jurisprudence, for instance. You have a basic constitution that enumerates specific rights that are deemed not to be given by the government. They're deemed to be divinely ordered and they cannot be abridged by the democratic interests of society as a whole. Now, one could argue on utilitarian grounds that a society that recognizes rights and that protects those rights leads to the greatest happiness for the greatest good. And that may well be the case, but it's really difficult to know whether that's the case. It may be that, for instance, recognizing the basic right of free speech, allowing white supremacists to speak on a campus like Berkeley, where you've got a whole bunch of leftists who are going to be really upset and have to have therapy as soon as you're done. In that kind of a situation, it seems like you're going to have a whole lot of miserable people, but you're protecting the rights of just one person. Nevertheless, in a basic order society that recognizes human rights, the interests of the many must give way to the human rights of the one.
0: All right. And again, this in a Mormon context, we're kind of trying to examine the Eldia scriptures as a whole, Joseph Smith's thought, and kind of what we believe as a people. And so something that would kind of butt up against this is a very utilitarian moment in the book of Nephi, where Laban is drunk, and the only way to get the plates from him is apparently to kill him, because the line that's used to justify it is, well, better than one man perish, than an entire nation dwindle in unbelief. And so that's why, you know, utilitarianism is in there in some instances, but we still have these problems with it.
1: Yeah, and, and, and we have these basic intuitions, and this is why we have the kind of difficulty with Laban being killed by Nephi, and we ought to, because we're pitting two different ethical intuitions against each other. That is, the the intuition that Laban has a basic human right not to be killed, and the notion that God's plan must be carried out, and that it will benefit the greatest good for the greatest number over a long period of time. And the spirit seems to engage in a kind of utilitarian <laughs> reasoning with Nephi in order to persuade him to carry out the dirty deed. So... We have these conflicting intuitions, and in almost every ethical problem that we have, it's because we have conflicting ethical intuitions, and that's what makes an ethical paradox when we face one. But what I'm really doing with this, and the reason the question mark is asked, is there an LDS teleological ethic? I'm exploring whether or not a teleological ethic like utilitarianism would be a sound basis for ethics in Mormonism because there's no reason why Mormons can't be utilitarians. It seems to be a theory is open to Mormons as to anybody else, but what I'm doing is assessing it, and at the end I find it wanting. I find it not to be a sound basis for an ethic, and one of the reasons is the human rights objection, and the other is a distributive justice objection.
0: All right, yeah, and I'll have Jacob kind of go into the next two objections.
2: The next objection would be the distributive justice objection. That is that theological theories can also give results that are unjust when dealing with problems of distributive justice. One instance would occur when the great good of a few outweighs the just distribution of goods to a larger segment of the population. And what would you say is an example of that? Well,
1: let's say that you've got, I mean, this actually happens when you come to the United order. You have people who are much better at producing goods and producing wealth than others, and if you take all of the incentive away from them to produce additional wealth beyond their basic needs, it seems that it won't function. In this instance, it may be, for instance, we have a few who are very wealthy and who really enjoy the arts. This, in fact, is, is the case in our society. You've got very wealthy people as a general rule who pay a lot of money to go see operas and plays and, you know, the kind of entertainment that's available to rich people. And then you build something where you have the government distribute funds to build a theater where the rich can enjoy it. So you've got these few and because their enjoyment is so great and they have a capacity to enjoy something that a person who's eking out an existence and still wanting for basics can't really enjoy. So it seems that in this case, the immense ability of a few to enjoy the arts outweighs the interests of the many to have the wealth redistributed to them so that they can eat food.
2: Okay. Now, a glaring problem of this in an LDS type of worldview is that we have the LDS ethic of Zion, or what we saw practiced as the law of consecration. Rather than maximizing a financial return, the motive for consecrating goods in Zion ethic is the commandment of love for God. Yet such love can't make sense within a utilitarian ethic unless it's shown that the greatest good would come from such a redistribution of goods that you're talking about. Yeah, and
1: I think it's clear that when your purpose is to transform a people so that whenever they earn anything more than their basic needs, the only reason that they would do it is out of love for others so that they will have sufficient for their needs as well. It turns out that That just doesn't work very well because people are selfish but ethically i mean the doctrine of covenant states repeatedly that ethically we have an obligation to take care of the poor and to have all things in common and distribute regardless of the ability to produce so for instance in the united order You would distribute property to those so that they could have the capacity to make their own existence in an agrarian society because they can raise cows or they can raise wheat or whatever. Well, it turns out that some people just don't know how to do that. I mean, you had a lot of people coming from England and they were not landowners and they didn't know how to farm. They didn't know how to tend cattle. They didn't know any of that. And so when the property got distributed to them, it basically got wasted because they didn't have the basic skill set to make it work. And so when it comes to distributing the goods that are put into the United Order, the question then becomes, okay, what is a just distribution? And it seems that we're going to have to base that just distribution on something more than just the basic ability to have an output that increases the size of the pie for everybody to participate in. The problems of distributive justice, and and in part, that's why the problems of distributive justice, and more precisely why the economic order basically failed people were just too darn selfish their hearts weren't changed when it came down to it they were unwilling to give to those who were unable to take care and produce wealth they were unwilling to take what they were able to produce wealth with and give it to them and so there were all these problems It looks like Brigham Young commented one time he said I never met a man who had more than he needed that is because what you would do is you would go to the bishop, you would declare what you needed, and the rest of what you didn't need would go into the bishop's storehouse. And what Brigham Young was saying is the thing failed because everybody needed everything they had all the time. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so it wasn't getting distributed the way that it was intended to, to benefit the poor. The whole purpose of Zion was to benefit the poor by redistributing wealth. And so in terms of distributive justice, the issue is not... Will it produce the greatest wealth? Will it create a bigger pie? The issue in Zion was, will it transform a people into loving one another? Will it transform their hearts so that they will act out of love for others rather than based upon the profit motive? Turns out that they gave it a good shot, but they were unable to, to change their hearts.
2: And just a quick question I have on, on this one and see if it makes any sense. So. In the model where those who could make wealth with what they had and didn't want to give to those who couldn't make wealth with that what they had would pretty much squander it. And if that were to happen, if the wealthy were to give to those who didn't know how to produce anything with it and it was just kind of squandered, wouldn't it turn into this cycle of those who had keep on giving to those who don't know what to do with it and then that's squandered and so everything just ends up being squandered away?
1: That was one of the basic problems that they faced was the fact that the amount of goods continued to dwindle because it was given to people who could not maximize the return. But I I don't want to oversimplify this. One of the primary problems that they faced was that when the saints would come into the United Order, they would bring their property and they would give a deed to their property to the bishop so that the church essentially owned the property. And the church would then essentially re-let the property to them so that they could work it as though they were lessees of the property owned by the church. But you had people who came into the church, gave their property to the bishop, and then they changed their minds and decided to leave the church and they wanted their property back. And the courts would not honor the deeds that were given transferring the property to the church. I'm an attorney and I'm appalled at the kinds of judicial decisions that were made. But, you know, the Mormons couldn't win a case in Missouri, and they couldn't win a case brought by a non-Mormon against a Mormon. Whenever somebody decided to leave the church and wanted their property back, all of a sudden their deeds weren't any good for some reason. So what happened was the property that was given to the bishop to redistribute continued to dwindle when those who had joined the church left the church. And then, of course, the whole thing fell apart and was almost impossible to sustain because the the Saints got driven out of Missouri. And then you had the run on the banks in 1837 when the Kirtland Safety Society essentially plunged into debt and those who had invested into it lost everything. And so all of a sudden, the Saints, instead of generating the kind of wealth that they anticipated through their various ventures, they had virtually nothing again.
2: All right. Uh, so the next objection to the utilitarianism is a genuine friendship objection. This one we can go over pretty quickly because we've, we've gone over a lot of you know, what is a genuine, loving, interpersonal relationship. What is the I-thou? And it seems that it's not very compatible with utilitarianism because if you value me as a friend merely because I contribute to the greatest good overall, then it seems that I can be replaced at any time by another commodity that is more valuable overall.
1: Yeah, utilitarian ethic treats people as as things, that is, as mere means to create an end which is more valuable than they are, and that is whatever the basic desired result is that you're seeking. Now, paradoxically, the value that's being sought in utilitarianism is the greatest happiness for the greatest number, so it, it is valuing people by saying what we value is the happiness for people, but if you're my friend only because you can lead to my happiness, then you're not really my friend at all. Because then you're a mere means to an end for me, and the minute you cease to lead to my happiness, then you're not going to be my friend anymore. Let me give a concrete example. I have some facts about me that I don't like, and and because you're my friend, you're honest with me, and you point them out and say, Look, you're controlling, and you're unreasonable, and you're going to be destroying all of your relationships until you get your act together. Well, that makes me unhappy. And because you're not contributing to my happiness here and now, now overall it would if I if I followed what you were saying, maybe I'd be happier in the end because genuine friends treat each other that way. And so maybe having a genuine friend leads to the greatest happiness for the greatest good and for the greatest number in the end. But the point is, is that if my friendship with you really is dependent on your ability to create the greatest happiness for me, then... The friendship that we have isn't really what is valuable in our relationship. What's valuable is how I can use you to create my greatest happiness. And that just seems to be incompatible with genuine friendship to me.
2: Yeah, but Valuing the happiness over the friendship itself. All right. Well, so what kind of ethic do we have in, in, in the LDS church? And is it a duty-based ethic? Let's move over to Corey to discuss that.
0: Very nice. So yeah, we just tried on utilitarianism, and it, like I said, it's, came up, it's come up wanting a little bit, and so now we're going to move on to the other kind, which Immanuel Kant is famous for, and he's a philosopher that came up with the categorical imperatives, and so there's conditional imperatives, which are just things that don't necessarily matter, or you're not obligated okay. to.
1: There are if-then conditional imperatives, are, I'm going to do this in order to get that. It becomes kind of, again, a teleological imperative because it's looking at the results rather than at the basis in reason and human dignity that was driving Kant's ethic. Or you could also call it a hypothetical imperative.
0: All right, so there's those kind, and then what he's come up with here is called a categorical imperative, meaning that it is binding, and it is, at least he develops it as a universal law that is binding on everyone and not just a particular situation. Okay, so I'll just read the quote. It says, for Kant, moral obligation is grounded in the pragmatic necessity that we must have a reason for what we choose to do. So, for him, reason provides a ground for morals because there are maxims. What's a maxim, I guess, just real quick? A maxim is
1: a basic statement of duty that would guide conduct.
0: All right, so a maxim of conduct, which we must accept as universally binding on all persons to act rationally. For example, we must accept as a duty that we will keep promises. Otherwise, the very idea of promise loses its meaning, for a promise that can be broken is simply not a promise at all. You've probably heard this kind of thing represented in like, what your parents said sometimes, like, well, what if everybody did what you did? Then how would the world be, huh? Think about that. And that's where a lot of people think that that's what Kant is saying, but that's not necessarily how Kant would formulate it. For Kant, not a focus on the results, but it's more that if everyone did do that, what would happen to the very notion of the law of that action, like the promise itself?
1: So let's take a concrete example. Let's take the idea of a line. I lived in a culture for a while in Italy where the concept of a line is very difficult. They have more of a concept of a crowd, but it leads to chaos. So undoubtedly when you were small, you had the urge to butt in line and not wait your turn. And so you butted in line and your mother turned to you and she frowned and she said, what if everybody butted in line? And so the notion for Kant isn't, well, a line wouldn't have meaning if I could just butt a will. But that is exactly what he's saying. It's not the result that the line becomes chaotic and really you're treating others unfairly. It's the concept of a line itself that's an issue. If you can butt in line anytime you want, you don't have a line. What you have is chaos. And so the very notion of a line demands that you wait your turn. Otherwise, the very concept of a line is rendered meaningless. And so Kant is looking at the kind of things, well, what does it mean to have a line, rather than, well, what, what are the results if everybody bets in line?
0: All right. That's kind of the first part of his categorical imperative. His second categorical imperative focuses on the same principle of the duties that prevail in human relationships. And we've stated this one many times, and it is act so that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in that of another, always as an end and never as a means only. And so, again, we've gone over this numerous times, so we don't need to go too deep into it, but this is very appealing, and it seems to work within the LDS worldview, because like we started out with, you know, we're basically uncreated beings who have intrinsic divinity within us and therefore we're not just pawns a for god to move around to get what he wants but we all have this intrinsic value as lds people i think it can be even more strongly represented than in ideas where we're just like created from dust and before that we didn't exist anything else about the second categorical imperative at this point it's simply this
1: I looked at the theories that Beckwith proposed, and it's to my surprise, you know, he looks at a number of theories and rejects them because they're not adequate legal theories. But the most common ethical theories he doesn't even look at, and he doesn't even assess them and just ignores them, much to my surprise. So I say, well, let's look at the theories he doesn't look at and see if a Mormon could adopt those. So I look at a utilitarian ethic or a teleological ethic and try that on, and well, this just doesn't quite fit. It has a lot of problems, which would suggest that it's not a sound basis for ethics. I'm now trying on Kant, and Kant seems to me to be a much better fit than utilitarianism is because it grounds ethics in basic human dignity, and we have this kind of a commitment in Mormonism that the worth of souls is great, and we're divine beings, and so the worth of of every single person is simply incomparable, and we must recognize the dignity of others based simply on the fact of the kind of thing that we are. And we're not a thing. We're persons. Persons have value that is greater than anything, any mere object. And so it seems that Kant's ethical theories, at least at first blush, would make a lot more sense for a Mormon to adopt.
0: Before we go on to the problems, you say, like, basically, there's nothing that would stop someone in the LDS tradition from adopting Kant's ethics. But there's also nothing that requires us to adopt that and you also state, I have severe reservations about Kant's theory of ethics, which I believe counsel against adopting it as a basis for LDS ethical theories. Now we're going to go into a couple of those. Uh, the first is the overboard rule argument, and I'll have Jacob discuss
2: that one. Kant argued that there is a single universal law that defines all moral obligation. He said, act only according to that maxim by which you can at the same time will, that it should become a universal law. Now. There's a bit of a fallacy in here. Kant argues from an analogy that moral laws, because they are universal, are like laws of nature. The universal imperative of duty can be expressed as follows: act as though the maxim of your action were by your own will to become a universal law of nature as well. And the fallacy is that unlike natural laws, the moral law tells us how things ought to be, not necessarily how things are. It's simply that if we take this this uh, maxim
1: act according to that maxim by which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law, we can come up with rules that clearly are not our moral duty, but seem to be consistent with it becoming universal law. So, so for instance, all people ought to get cats as pets. Well, mm-hmm. I, I can will that to be a universal law, and it, it seems like we ought to have pets, and I could will that, that we all get cats, but I don't have an ethical duty to get a cat. And so it seems to sanction as a moral duty all kinds of things that really aren't our moral duties.
2: Okay, so you say perhaps we could expand on it a bit and clarify it so it fits a bit better. And You would say, number one, it is a duty to act on a maxim only if one cannot will to refrain from the act directed by the maxim to be universal moral law. And number two, it is permissible to act on a maxim only if one can will it to be universal law. And number three, it is wrong to act on a maxim only if one cannot will it to be universal law. So what are the clarifications here?
1: So what I'm doing, I'm looking at Kant and asking, well, can I refine Kant in a way that I can overcome this objection? And it turns out, yeah, I think I can come up with a better formulation, but now it becomes somewhat complicated as to what my maxim is. Once I state it this way, it's not clear what my moral duty would be because I can't readily come up with maxims that meet all three conditions. And so I'm left wanting with respect to, well, how does this guide my conduct and how does it become a maxim of conduct?
2: Okay. Well, the, that's pretty much all I've got on the overbroad rule argument. Do you have anything else there before we move on to the 100 inclusive value argument? I do not. All right. Let's go ahead and move on to that then.
0: Okay. So. This one addresses the second categorical imperative. So you say, What of the second categorical imperative? I am inclined to accept the second categorical imperative as a valid statement of moral obligation, but for reasons very different than those urged by Kant. So, for example, it recognizes that persons are not things and thus cannot be used as a mere means, as we've talked about, but always treated as ends. But you disagree with Kant because he distinguishes these persons from mere things in a way that would only have people that have what he calls the capacity for transcendental rationality as those who should be treated as ends in and of themselves. and So that leaves out a lot of people. So would someone lose all their rights if they happen to be in a coma or of less mental capacity and things like that?
1: Well, or children or animals. It seems that we have a duty to treat animals in a certain way, and yet, if we adopt the second categorical imperative, we don't have an ethical obligation toward animals at all. And maybe, you know, I don't have any ethical obligations with respect to small children because they're not capable of rationality. So it seems that we need a very different reason for adopting the second categorical imperative than the capacity for transcendental rationality.
0: All right, that makes sense. You say, what I value is not limited to what you are, but what includes primarily who you are. So what makes you worthy of respect is not merely that you are a human, but that you are the particular human that you are. It is the uniqueness of each thou whom we encounter that demands respect and demands never to be treated as a mere thing. When you say more like this, demand does not just arise from autonomy or sameness alone but primarily out of heteronomy or difference and uniqueness, which just basically means like, it's not because you happen to conform to what is human, it's not that you're from the class human, and everyone in the class human deserves this dignity. It's each individual deserves it. It's just kind of a a different way to think about it.
1: Well, It's an important distinction, and that is that it's not the mere fact that we have a shared humanity that gives rise to our ethical obligations. It's the uniqueness of each person in what they bring to the world that the lay's demands upon us ethically. And so what we're looking at is a very different basis for ethical obligation. It's not our shared humanity. In other words, what makes us the same. Rather, it's our uniquenesses. It's what makes us different that is the basis
0: for the second categorical imperative. All right, great. So that's the basic overview of Kant and some of the critiques. And then in the book, you include egoistic theories. Um, And first, why, if we're trying on different theories, like you seem to speak pretty negatively of the egoistic theory, why did you include it? Well, egoism
1: has been a, a very tantalizing way of looking at ethics, and that is that what I'm looking at, because I'm an eternal being, I'm looking at maximizing my happiness in the long run, and it's really about me. So for instance, if I'm looking at an ethic because it will make me happy, I'm looking at something that will lead to the greatest realization of my potential as a divine being. And so what I'm saying is there are certain aspects of egoistic theories that are consonant with the gospel. And so I'm looking at an egoistic theory and saying, well, okay, a teleological or utilitarian theory is not going to work. A duty-based theory like Kant seems to be wanting as well. What about an egoistic theory? Would that work for LDS?
0: All right. Makes sense. It's pretty much self-explanatory. Like you already said, it just means that you basically seek out your happiness and that's the greatest good. And that is the most natural way to do things, it seems, because it's pretty hard to, again, the downfall of the United Order is that people seem to seek their best interest above others inherently. And they're not going to see, they're like, oh, well, I do need all this stuff. I don't want to give it to other people because you just have this perception.
1: But, and let's make a distinction here between psychological egoism and ethical egoism. So psychological egoism is actually what led to the downfall of the United Order, because people were, in fact, seeking their own best interests at the expense of others. And so what we're saying is, gee, it may just be built into us, unless our hearts are changed, to be selfish and to look after our own interests and to be so self-absorbed that we really don't look after the interests of others, kind of what we would take to be the essence of love. Psychologically, in fact, a number of ethical egoists would argue why adopt a theory that's impossible to adopt and that is a theory that suggests that we actually look out for the benefit of others because we're incapable of doing that, we're constitutionally built so that we always look out for our best interests and so we couldn't have an ethical obligation to do what we can't do and if psychological egoism is true, then the only theory that's going to make sense is ethical egoism, which is an argument for ethical egoism, of course. But it makes this basic logical error. Psychological egoism describes it the way that the natural man, and let's throw in women here because there must be natural women as well, that's the way that the natural person acts. It's not the way that we should act. There's a difference between what is and what should be. Ethical theories apply to what should be and how we should act, whereas psychological theories apply to the way things actually are. And it seems to be the very goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change that basic nature so that we aren't so self-regarding and selfish.
0: All right, great. And then just, yeah, to finish this up, you said, the only way that egoism can be taught as an ethical theory is if one's greatest good is always served by seeking the interest of others. In fact, that is precisely what I claim to be the case. Our greatest happiness is served by forgetting ourselves and serving others out of love for them. And that leads us into what we're kind of coming to here. And you name this section, An LDS Agape Theory of Ethics in Alignment with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And before we get into it, I just want to read this and clarify what you're doing here. So you say, I want to outline a pre-theory of moral obligation in LDS thought. For the Restoration has the resource to provide a profound basis for a Christian ethic. The starting point for an LDS ethic is the realization that whatever we are essentially is uncreated. Our eternal nature defines our inherent capacities. So before we get more into it, you say this is a pre-theory.
1: By pre-theory, what I'm saying is that I'm providing a meta-ethic. That is, I'm providing a ground and basis for ethics. I'm not providing a pragmatic guide for the way that people will actually act. It takes developing this agape theory and seeing what it entails. Let's say we adopt your agape meta-ethic. What then are we obligated to do in particular circumstances? That work remains to be done. What I'm doing is arguing that there's a basis in meta-ethics to adopt an agape theory of ethics in LDS thought. And I'm about to argue that I think that it's really the only adequate theory that a, a Mormon could adopt as a basis of ethics.
0: All right. And then, yeah, if you would just kind of give us an overview of what this is and why it works so well in the LDS view and why we would be obligated to follow it, as far as you can see. Agape
1: is the Greek word for love, and it's a particular type of love. It is charity, it's the kind of love that is commanded by Christ that we have for our neighbors. So it turns out that if we ask the question, What laws define the conditions of mutual self-realization that we must abide by to partake of the divine nature? Because the purpose of human existence in Mormonism is to realize their divine nature. And the answer is, and I argue for this at great length in all of my books, that there's only one eternal law that defines that possibility, and that's the law of love. In fact, it's the only law that's been given in Christianity. God, as a unity of divine persons, is love. The whole purpose of the gospel is to teach us how to be in relationship with each other so that we manifest this divine love so that we can realize the divine nature inherent in us by entering into the relationship that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost enjoy, and we have been invited into this relationship in order to fully realize who and what we are. So I'm looking at this from a naturalistic standpoint, and if I ask, well, what kind of beings are we? And rather than a psychological egoism as the basis for what we are, I argue that what we should be is defined by the law of love. I then ask the next question, what is the purpose of a moral law? And the purpose of the moral law is to teach us what we ought to do in specific circumstances. The purpose of the moral law is to challenge us so that we act on love for others and love others as we love ourselves. That's the command. This is the law that's actually given by Jesus. Thus, good and evil can be defined solely in terms of the law of love that was given by Jesus as the basis of our obligations toward one another. So, I define an agape theory of ethics in Mormonism, and I define good acts as follows. A good act is one that leads to healing a broken relationship, or growing in intimacy and meaning in existing relationships. So, my theory of ethics is a thoroughly relational theory of ethics. I would add that those choices and acts that lead to personal growth to realize their divine nature are the same as those acts that lead to interpersonal growth. So growing as a person is the same as growing in our relationships with one another. And the greatest value in this ethic, what is valued above all else, is found in between us. It's like I say with the I-thou relationship. The importance of the I-thou relationship isn't the I, it isn't, and it isn't merely the thou. It's the hyphen in between the I and the thou. That's where the relationship exists. That's where the love is found. And so we define a good act in terms of those things that that nurture and heal relationships, whereas evil then becomes whatever destroys a relationship. Evil then becomes alienation and destruction of relationships. And so I'm defining good and evil in terms of
2: the law of love.
0: All right, and then an expansion of that, that you lay out here which I thought was pretty interesting says that the relationships at issue can be broader than relationships between persons for it is just as evil to torture animals as it is humans it is evil to destroy the environment the relationships at issue thus include the broadest array of relationships the relationship I have with others with animals with the earth itself and with myself an evil act is one that injures relationships or which leads to alienation or separation and so kind of makes you sound like a hippie, but in a good way. What do you, I mean what do you think about that? The notion of
1: stewardship over the earth is one that is inherent in Mormonism, and it's a very important part of a Mormon ethic. We have an ethical obligation toward the earth over which we have been given stewardship to care for it and to tend it. And the earth is actually turned into a, a person, not merely a personal being, but a kind of a person in the Book of Enoch um, found in the book of Moses, Enoch actually hears mother earth groaning in pain because we now talk about mother earth. Not only is the earth a person, it's the person with whom we have the most intimate relationship possible, our mother. We call this spaceship. We are dependent on our mother for life. This mother gives us life and continues to nurture us. And so we have an obligation toward the environment to tend for it, to care for it and not to harm it. And to make sure that we act in harmony with it. I tend to believe that the way that a lot of Oriental philosophy, I think, is very valuable in this regard. I think Native American, I wouldn't really call them philosophies, but basic Native American myths and teachings about the relationship that we have with the earth, I think are very, very valuable in this context. And we have a lot to learn from them. But there's no question that in Mormonism, the stewardship that we have for the earth and to care for it is one of the primary moral and ethical obligations that we have, merely because of the relationship that we have to the earth.
0: All right, cool. Yeah, I've heard lots of people say that we kind of ignore that in our day, uh, because it conflicts with, and this is kind of a side note, it seems to conflict with the attitude that a lot of people have. It's like, well, it's the end days, and God's going to fix everything in the end, so it doesn't really matter how fast the earth goes to crap. Well, and you
1: know, I mean, animals also, we have relationships with animals. And, and so we have a duty to treat animals with love and respect as well and to recognize what their role in the world is and to live in harmony with them. And so these kinds of relationships, it's very important not to define relationships narrowly. We come into the world that already exists when we come into mortality. We come into this life in the pain of another, in an environment that already exists based upon the grace and goodness and gifts that others have already given before we got here. We come into this world already in relationships, and we are essentially relational beings. Human beings cannot exist as non relational beings. It's simply impossible. We can't survive. And so, this ethic is based upon a realization of the kind of beings that we actually are and what our potential and reason for existence is. But it's also defined by the law of love that's been given to us by Jesus. When Jesus talks about the law of love, he focuses primarily on our neighbor, and then he asks, who is our neighbor? A lot of people want to say, well, the word neighbor, by the way, comes from a, the Germanic root, means the, the nearby neighbor is in its root, simply the person who's nearby, and you can see the relationship between neighbor and nearby in the very word itself. But that's not who our neighbor is. Our neighbor isn't merely the person next door, nor is it merely a person. Our neighbor is that with which we have relationship. And so our neighbor is much broader than just, you know, all of the people that we know. It's the entire world. The entire world is a thou to us. Once we treat the world as a thou, it becomes sacred. It becomes a place where we exist and then realize that the law of love demands of us to live in harmony with nature. It demands that we treat the environment with love and to love the world that we live in and respect it. The same with animals. You guys know that I won't even kill a spider. I pick him up and carry him outside, basically on the recognition that if I found that spider on Mars, it would be the most amazing thing we ever found. And I think that all life is just amazing. But also out of the fact that we have a relationship with everything, and it's just part of the recognition of loving the world in which we exist and being grateful for it and being grateful for the gift of love that's been given to us the entire world is in relationship with us. And so I emphasize the nature of the relationships at issue. And when Jesus, you know, he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, he asks, who's our neighbor? I want to suggest our neighbor is the entire world, including the natural world and animals.
0: All right, great. Yeah, I'll just read a couple of things. And I have a question about just some things. So one thing that you emphasize is he said, now, This law of love cannot be formulated easily, for it is known only through the Spirit rather than the letter of the law. Yet this law is near to us, for it is written on our hearts precisely because it is an expression of who and what we are eternally. And so, how I understand is what you're saying is, you know, how this is going to come down and how you can actually apply it to your life is not exactly something that is just, you know, you can say, you know, you should always tell the truth forever and no matter what the situation is, you have to make that universal like Kant's law or like, you know, always have to serve the greatest good. It's more of a case-by-case basis, I guess. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, what I'm doing is adopting an act version of an agape theory rather than a rule version. So the rule is love your neighbor. But if I tell you your ethical obligation is to show love, you then turn to me and say, well, what does that mean? How do I do that? How do I show love? And the response is that we must wait upon the spirit in the moment of decision in order to know what ethical demands the other is laying upon us so that we can serve the other. It is something in the relationship, in the moment of reality in which we're in the relationship. And the you that I was in relationship with yesterday doesn't exist anymore. You've moved on. You've grown. You're now a different person. And the ethical demands that I have in relationship with you to serve your best interest change. The way that I served your best interest when you were eight years old is not the way that I serve your best interests as an adult. And so it behooves me to be open to you as a person so that I can be inspired by you and by God and by the Spirit to know how best I demonstrate and show my love to you. This is not something that can be reduced to a rule, okay? This was Paul's point. When Paul is talking about grace, this is the kind of thing he's talking about. We can't simply reduce it to a command and say we have these commandments, like, let me state this in a way that brings some context, okay? If I love you, I don't kill you, I don't steal from you, I don't envy you, I don't do all the things that the Ten Commandments tell me not to do, okay? And I do honor you. I mean, it's like my parents. Given that I love my parents, I honor my parents that their days may be long upon the earth. So I see the the law of Moses as kind of a minimal statement of the law of love. It teaches us what not to do to harm you. So there's a a harm principle built into this law of love, okay? But there's also this maximal law of love that was taught by Christ. And look at how it is kind of an in-the-moment kind of a decision that we make. If a person comes to me and they ask me to show them, they say, look, I'm from out of town, Can, can you give me directions? The Christian doesn't just point and say, well, it's down the road. The Christian walks the mile to show them the direction. And in Christ's point, what he's pointing out is the, the distance that he was talking about was the distance that a person was legally obligated to go with a Roman soldier if a Roman soldier asked for directions. And then he pointed out, you only you don't only go as far as the law requires you to go, you go two miles. You go the extra mile. Walk all the way with them. And, and it's like, With my children, when they asked me for directions the first time, I didn't merely point down the road and say, gee, I hope you can find it. I took them to school and showed them around. (laughs) I showed them where it was. I showed them how to get there. Let me give another example of this. If I truly love my wife, I don't merely fail to commit adultery. That's not what the law of love merely demands. Clearly, if I love my wife, I don't commit adultery. I don't cheat on her. But I'm not even tempted to cheat on her because I love her. I don't covet another woman. I don't lust after another woman in my heart because I love my wife. And to lust after another woman would be inconsistent with loving my wife. But if I truly love my wife, that's not a problem because I don't have lust in my heart for other women. I love my wife. And it's not hard, it's easy because I have that love. So, what I want to say is it looks at first blush. I mean, look at the kinds of things, again, that Jesus is talking about. If somebody sues you at law, and they want your coat, well, you take and give them not merely your coat, you give them two. It's like, okay, well, that's ridiculous. And then he makes this kind of impossible demand upon us. You know, you've heard it said that you must love your neighbor, and so you must. But that's not all. You're also required to love your enemy. Well, this is the real challenge, after all, isn't it? The law of love, because loving those who are easy to love is no challenge, and Having an ethical obligation to do what just comes naturally and is easy to do ain't much of an ethical obligation. The ethical obligation to love our neighbor is the obligation that actually teaches us about love. We came to this life to learn how to live this law of love. Our ethical obligation therefore becomes the same as our purpose in life, to learn to love one another. That's why it's our ethical obligation to begin with. Ethic thus becomes also a means of self-realization. So, for instance, it would adopt something that is important in Aristotelian theories of ethics, which look at realizing one's nature. So, in Aristotle, something is good if it leads to eudaimonia, happiness. But more important is realizing human nature and the fullness of human nature. Well, in this ethic, what we're really doing is realizing our nature because we learn to love one another. We're being challenged in what we are to grow. And so we're put in a situation here in life where we're constantly taken out of our comfort zone. We're given opportunities to fail one another constantly by failing to love. We know what we're called to do in relation to the other if we just have an open heart. So what I'm saying is, when it comes to the law of love, if I tell you, well, your duty is to love another person, that doesn't really give you any pragmatic or practical guidance as to what your duty is. We must be open to the spirit and to what the other person is actually calling to us in the moment to know how best to serve them. And so this law is a challenge because it's the way that we actually interact with other people and the challenge is to interact with other people in the fullness of their dynamic life and the fullness of their growth and in the fullness of the humanity that they're developing and in the fullness of the person that they are here now, not holding them in the past as to what they were but being willing to let go of the past and love them here and now. So this law of love that becomes our ethical or defines our ethical duty becomes the very basis of the way that we relate to each other. And I am arguing, because I adopt this agape theory of ethics, that we have an ethical obligation to treat each other lovingly. And when we fail to do so, I get into this in Volume 2. While this is Volume 2, we're going to talk about it in a few chapters, about the kind of self-deception that we engage in when we feel that we should serve another person or treat them in a certain way and we fail to do so and then we began to justify ourselves as to why we didn't treat them the way we knew we should and we then betray ourselves and engage in an act of self-deception in order to try to convince ourselves that what we were really obligated to do is what we did rather than what we felt called to do in the moment so this law of love becomes one that is an ongoing means of growth for us because we must live it in the here and now, just like the I-thou relationship is lived in its fullness in the here and now, in the dynamic realization of the growth of a person here and now. So the law of love makes demands upon us, the other makes demands upon us, lays ethical obligations upon us, only in the here and now and the fullness of life. It's a theory of living ethics. It's a theory of living interaction with other human beings, with the world with our pets and animals, with the insects that we find on the ground and then flying in the air and the trees that produce oxygen for us and give us life, it sacralizes everything because we're called to love it all. Everything becomes sacred in our experience. There becomes no distinction between the profane and the sacred because everything to us is sacred. Okay, I'm getting off my soapbox right now.
0: Yeah, sorry, I'm going to take you down a little bit. And I, I guess you've kind of maybe dodge this already by saying that it's more of a meta-ethic, but I was looking up different ethical theories, and one that sounds pretty much almost exactly like this is called situational ethics, and it's also an agape theory. Have you heard of that, I assume?
1: Well, an agape theory is situational because what we're called to do changes based upon the dynamics
0: of the relationship. Right, so anyway, I I was just saying I was looking it up and trying to see the strengths and weaknesses of what's called situational ethics, and they're saying, Well, you know, it's in the class or family of relativism because it's not going to be the same in every situation, or for every single person, because it's interpretive. And anyway, some of the strengths are of situational ethics is it's very personless, which means it puts people above rules, just like Jesus said The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, that's kind of the main thing that Jesus was railing against when he was here. He'd come and people would be like, well, we shouldn't touch unclean things, so I'm not going to help this Samaritan that's beaten up by the side of the road. And he's like, no. Let me add this.
1: I mean, Christianity has had problems with laws that we're obligated to follow all along because it seems to be inconsistent with the very notion of grace. In other words, what Jesus laid upon us wasn't a lot of rules and burdens that we have to follow. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, precisely because he's not laying on his rules, he's laying upon us the opportunity to live in a dynamic here and now with each other. And so it's a very different way of relating to ethics than just saying, well, this is the rule.
0: Right. The one problem they bring up with that is like, well, here's the thing, like, that's nice and all, but it's super vague and it's impossible to say exactly what you are supposed to do. And like you said, you know, we're not necessarily getting to that, but it's hard to work out what's the most loving thing is in every situation, because it changes from situation to situation, and one of the main problems I was like, well, this seems like a really great goal or a theory for, let's say, we'll call it the fully realized man, but the problem is we're not fully realized man, and if we were all like Jesus, this might work, but some people say we can't necessarily be trusted to do the right thing, and it would only work if all men were angels, is one of the objections.
1: The notion we can only adopt an ethical theory if we always fulfill that ethical theory is nonsense. It ought to be with any ethical theory that sometimes we violate our duties of ethics and it leads us to understand what our duty is. The mere fact that our duty arises in the dynamic here and now with each other doesn't mean that it's totally relative. It is relative, but it's relative to persons in the here and now. There is one law, love each other. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so this is the law that's been given. It's the only law that's been given in Christianity. And let me admit this. It's like, you know, Jean-Paul Salt, um, one of the problems in white, one of the reasons he became an existentialist, which is a situational ethic as well, is that he had a, a real problem. He was wondering whether he should go into the army, but he also had an obligation to take care of his mother. And when he looked at the ethical theories, none of them answered that question for him. He said, well, do I have an ethical duty to serve my mother or do I have an ethical duty to serve my country? And he was looking at the various ethical theories and none of them really worked to answer the question he had. That's a part way he adopted uh, an existentialist approach to life. And Existentialism is, is kind of the quintessential situationist ethic, if you will. But the bottom line is that if we adopt a rule theory of ethics, We're always going to be able to come up with exceptions where the theory and the rules are just not going to work. But when we make relationships the greatest good, we can't have a rule that simply covers all relationships except love one another. That is the rule. But it's a vague rule because it doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't tell me whether I should stay and take care of my mother or whether I should go in and serve my country. It doesn't answer the question. That question is answered in the dynamic here and now when we seek the Spirit to give us guidance. And maybe, just maybe, Jean-Paul Sartre was right, and what we're actually called upon to do is to make a decision and to declare what our lives are about. And so there isn't a pre-made right or wrong about this. We can show our love in a lot of different ways. Maybe we fulfill this ethic in a lot of different ways, because there are a lot of different things I can do to show my love for others. And it's not that I'm called to do just one thing. There are all kinds of things I can do. I am, however, called specifically not to do specific things. There seems to be built in the no harm principle into the law of love. I shouldn't do anything that harms you as a person, that harms your prospects to actualize your potential as a person, those kind of things. So I can come up with a lot of negative constraints on what we can't do to people because that would be inconsistent with the law of love. But then there is this entire positive area of, well, what should I do then? And later in the book, we're going to get into another distinction that will be important. There are acts that we're obligated to do. And if I don't do them, I violate my ethical duties. But there are also acts which are good for me to do, but that I don't have an ethical obligation to do. We call these supererogatory acts. Supererogatory acts are, are acts that I'm not ethically bound to do but it is nevertheless good that I do them or better that I do them than not do them. And so I'm going to make further distinctions down the
0: line. All right, the situational ethics, which like I said is very similar, can be used to justify some pretty bad things since it's left up to the individual and it is vague, then you can use it to like, for example, a situation, it's a real story. And this guy said, yeah, on on this ethical theory, I guess this is what the ethical thing to do was. But there were some settlers Their village was destroyed by Indians, and they had to make a trek through the woods to a safe place with more not Indians, I guess. And they had to sneak through the forest, and there was one woman, and she had a baby that was crying. And so if the baby cried, it would cause the Indians to hear them, and then every single person in that trek would get killed because of that. And so she chose to smother and kill her baby. And on this ethic, it would seem, well, that's the most loving thing to do. Because the baby was already dead if she let it live and keep crying, and everyone would have died if she didn't do that. And so, I mean, you could also use that for utilitarianism. How does it avoid the same pitfalls of utilitarianism where, you know, sometimes one person basically has to take one for the team and not have individual rights, and that's the greatest love?
1: On simple game theory, there's only one thing that could be done there because they all die if the baby cries, whereas only the baby dies if the baby dies, right? So on simple game theory, one would suggest that that's the only rational act that one can do. But it may be that in the moment, if one feels a strong spiritual confirmation that, nope, it's okay, you're all going to die, but you cannot kill your own child. And so, really, these kind of things are decisions to be made in the moment. They're decisions that are made in relationship, and this is the primary relationship, the relationship with God. Because what it means is being open to communication from God so that we understand what our duty is. And so, it requires us to have a clear line of communication in order to know and understand what we are obligated to do in the moment. But I don't think that the decision, this was in the closing. The famous MASH television program had this very dilemma built into it. They were in the back of a military truck. There was a Korean woman who had a baby, and the North Koreans were patrolling. And if the baby cries, they all die. And so the woman smothered her baby to save their lives. Was it a demonstration of love? Well, as I said on Game Theory, it's really the only thing, because it's either they all die or just one dies. And it's not the result of a utilitarian ethic. It's the mere fact that in a zero-sum game, one dying is better than, than everybody dying. What is the most loving thing to do? I don't think that it's easy to answer that. If she were in the moment and she prayed for guidance, that would be the thing to do. And then to act upon the guidance that one receives. I mean, in Mormon practice, this is how decisions are actually made. What do I do with my life? What am I obligated to do? What serves others the best? What serves others the best? (laughs) Turns out what I'm obligated to do is just the same as what Joseph Smith said. I listen for God to give me guidance for a lot of reasons. First of all, because he's much more intelligent than I am, and because I trust him. I trust him not merely to lead me to the greatest happiness and joy, but to guide me in my moment of need, and that is a part of what it means. We have this saying in, in Christianity, pray always. Well, that doesn't mean we're always down on our knees petitioning God. Prayer is communication with God. And what it means is always being open to communication from God and being in dialogue with God at all times. So that when God speaks to us, we hear. And when we have decisions to make, it is just the most natural thing on earth for us to turn to God and say, please give me guidance.
0: Okay, well, I won't impress you on any more moral dilemmas, I guess, but... I don't know, it seems more like a theory to aspire to rather than one that can be practically used for humanity as it is now. And again, it's a great thing that sounds good, but I don't know if people are getting answers to every single prayer fast enough. Well,
1: every ethical theory is one that humanity merely aspires to.
0: That's built
1: into the distinction between what is and what ought to be. Ethical theories deal with what ought to be, not with what is. And so if if humanity is one way, even though it has an ethical obligation to be another way, there would be no point to having an ethical obligation or an ethical theory at all if we always did what we were supposed to do. It would just come naturally to us, and we wouldn't even need an ethical theory to give us guidance.
0: I just think it should help us to know what it is that we're supposed to do, though, and if that's just so relative, then it's hard to...
1: Well, but all of these theories suffer from this defect.
0: True. One of the problems with
1: utilitarianism is that it's not clear what counts as utility. It's not clear what leads to our happiness. And we don't even know how to do the math as to what leads to the greatest good for the greatest number. I mean, when we start looking at it in concrete terms, it becomes very difficult. It's the same thing with Kant's theory. Given your human dignity, what am I obligated to do? Well, I'm obligated not to use you as a mere means, but that's built into the law of love as well.
0: That's why I say that
1: all the guidance that all of the other theories give
0: is built into this theory. Let me read that quote then, if you would. We're going to sum it up with that because I wanted to bring it back to this. So you say, An outline of moral theory in LDS thought ties together the moral intuitions that underlie several ethical theories. Like Aristotelian and Thomist theories, the good is defined in terms of what fulfills our human nature to the extent that such fulfillment leads to mutual self-realization. Like utilitarian theories, The good is what leads to the greatest happiness and joy. Like Kant's theory, moral obligation is a duty that arises out of our nature as relational agents. Like social contract theories, the good is not something imposed on us by another, but something to which we mutually agree. For the choice to love is certainly an autonomous choice that expresses our deepest being. Like platonic theory, the law of love is not open to a point of view or merely a subjective judgment, for there truly is conduct that cannot be called loving no matter what criterion we are using to judge it so one thing that came to mind as I read that is just ethical theories and stuff like and all of Mormonism in general is this kind of a search for truth and Joseph Smith defined truth as saying you know we seek out the best books and the best learning and Mormonism just is truth it doesn't matter where it comes from so having a hodgepodge of different ethical theories to have a concrete or not a concrete but a an ethical way that Mormons act is very Mormon, I think, because that's kind of the spirit of Joseph Smith in general, is taking everything that's good that is being developed by humanity worldwide and grasping on to the good parts of it and leaving out the bad parts if possible and moving forward with that. Thoughts? Well,
1: sounds like a good summary of the entire matter. So I maintain that an agape theory of ethics is one that is fully satisfactory and that best fits Mormon commitments. It also is one that I believe best fits the general commitments of Christianity, which is good because Mormonism claims to be Christianity. And at the end of the day, I think that whatever problems this agape theory has, every theory of ethics has. And so it's just a problem that is endemic to ethical theories in that we have to be careful in assessing the guidance that they would give us. So unless you're going to adopt some kind of hard and fast rule utilitarian ethics, so for instance. It's what we do with laws in society, and I've already told you that I think that the realm of law is really the realm of social justice, not the realm of ethics, because ethics is between an I and a thou, whereas the rule of law is between me, you, and the third. What's our obligation to the person who's not me and you, okay, who's not included in us? And so when it comes right down to it, any problems that the agape theory has are going to be common problems that any theory has. And that's because it's built into the human situation that we're always going to be asking the question, what is my obligation here? And clearly, if if I'm going to be using you as a mere means, I'm violating both Kant's second categorical imperative and the law of love. I reconfigured the second categorical imperative to arise out of relationships and the law of love on purpose, because I, I adopt the second categorical imperative as a pragmatic and practical guide to conduct for purposes of the law of love and the agape theory that I adopt. I think the second categorical imperative, as I've reinterpreted it, is an expression of the law of love and gives pragmatic guidance to what we ought to do and ought not to do.
0: Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploring Mormon thought.